0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode of Zodiac Chronicle, a bonus episode with uh, what I would say one of the most unputdownable authors, both online or in physical media that I know, a, a gracious guest of this show, and the man with I think the greatest single flex on a film book, which I'm <laughs> all about in my life, forward by Bong Joon-ho on his incredible thorough stunning and beautiful david fincher mind games it's the great adam namen adam thank you uh, so much for coming that, back to that, chat to me my friend
1: that's all way too much i will say this
0: <laughs> uh, having
1: a having having a forward by by bong is surreal and it was funny because when the Safties did the forward for my my pta book they're very nice guys and i said uh you know, there's only, it's either going to, I've either got to go downhill from here, you know, and call in <laughs> less famous favor, or I can only go up. And so, you know, with apologies to Josh and Benny, I think Bong Joon-ho is at least level, you know. <laughs> who, knows, much. Who, who knows where to go from there. But he was a good fit for Fincher because they're both, you know, masters of a certain kind of of narrative and propulsion. One thing that Bong says in the, in the intro is he, he describes the difference between curvilinear and linear cinema, you know, the yes. the cinema of circularity and recursiveness and the cinema of the straight line. And he files Fincher under straight line, which I think is, is true in his procedurals. But I was also thinking that there are some curvilinear Fincher films,
0: <laughs> and, Fincher and- films
1: where the line, where the line bisects a little bit. And so, you know, not to contradict the brilliant Oscar-winning <laughs> filmmaker who wrote my foreword, but it's complicated, you know.
0: Yeah, and I, I love that his his very specific subset of the theory of linear or curvilinear cinema is the incisiveness with which Finch's films hit you and cut you, and he uses that as, like, this overarching metaphor about, like, the, gro- like the, the impossible groove that his films carve through you, and I think that that's a massive part of what Zodiac has meant so much to me and I think you too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the lamest postulation possible, but you say game recognize game. right? So <laughs> when Bong makes a movie in, in Memories of Murder that is about, I think, history and technologies and techniques of investigation and really about irresolvability. Yes. And it takes its irresolvability, its cue it takes from reality because the case in memories of murder is, is unsolved. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways all bong is, is humble and respectful enough to not graft an ending onto something that has none. Yes. And, you know, and, and, and Fincher, I think in Zodiac, you can argue that that last scene in the airport is maybe an attempt at closure, but as we've talked about, you know, I think it's anything, but
0: yes, you know? Yeah. Look, I'm, um you you just i want to i want to talk about the book um because i'd like lo- like before we'd ever before i'd really known your work i remember stumbling through you know, i was living like a couple of hours north of sydney i stumbled onto your you know original cohen book you know this the, <laughs> the book really ties the films together mm-hmm. i was so struck by it obviously then by the time i'd started becoming much more aware of your work you know Pete. Paul Thomas Anderson, Masterworks, and obviously that is so near and dear to my heart after everything that Mr. Travis Woods and I did with Inherent uh, Inherent Vice, with Increment Vice, and now this, and I just truly think um, it's it's another special approach. Is there any rhyme and reason other than just these, like, I don't know, I, I look at the three filmmakers you've chosen and I think... They're almost impossibly daunting tasks to tackle them, <laughs> and I do not envy you at all in the yeah, tackling they, of the all of them. <laughs>
1: so I just I wonder is that your choice? They're they're commercially viable.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, true,
1: and I and I no, and I think that truly there's a sweet spot between like a, a viability, a certain humility in the face of these filmmakers, but also uh, the movies are there to be read. You yes. know. And I think that each movie had one particular difficulty of approach in the case of the Coen's actually, it's funny. I'm not sure I solved the problem with the Coen's that I revere those films so mightily that I have to try and not just lapse into appreciation. And that's a taste thing where in order to write honestly with the Coen's for me is to write reverently. And so I was a little worried that maybe by the end, even though the analyses are very specific I worried that maybe the tone is a bit, you know, gospel, <laughs> gospel song. Uh, you know, in the case of Anderson, it was um, overcoming a certain uh, overcoming a certain aversion to the films I had when I was younger, and then trying to also overcome the predictable narrative of you know artistic evolution from the millennial. Tyro to this kind of experienced master filmmaker. And I thought that reordering the movies chronologically kind of solved that because it gave the book a more historical and sociological and political through line, which another author or set of authors might take in even further directions and even more, you know, dispersed directions. But for me was at least enough, enough space to, to contain the movies and to try to not just repeat the, the legend narrative of, you know, the young filmmaker who grows up. And then with Fincher, it was harder still because I was the least certain in some ways about the relationship of uh, the artist to his work, the certainty that you're dealing with an artist and not an artisan. Yes. The, the ways of, of accounting for personality in someone who doesn't write their own work. And also the ambivalence I, I, I have had at times about not just Fincher, but his influence and the kind of films that he that he makes so brilliantly. Um, you know, are they meditations on uh, consumer culture and consumer psychology, or are they just kind of, you know, case studies in it?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, a, it is a fine line, and um, you know, I remember. Way back when I was talking about doing this project, I had a couple of friends talk to me, going, you know, sort of facetiously at the time, but saying things like, "I my favorite David Fincher films, um, his Madonna videos or his Michael Jackson and uh, scream video with Janet Jackson." You know, like there was this funny thing of, um, his influence, and I think that anchoring the whole, the whole study on that, it it, it lends into exactly that conflict that you talk about. Is is this guy, is this guy, uh, critiquing, or is he just the best at exhibiting these kind of impulses and it's a good quandary to have and again in the spirit of unsolvability uh in both this show and in his work i think it's just like it's probably there's probably bits of both i I, I,
1: I had someone ask me i did another interview and someone said you said that you you said that you said something at the beginning he said to me that he found a little too evasive or or that i should have gone deeper where he says you know it's no great mystery how fincher makes his movies and he said he said to well that's a pretty easy way to dodge you know (laughs) five or six or seven pages on methodology and i said yeah but you know it's a it's a click it's it's a it's a it's a google search culture i mean if you want to read about how many takes he does and what he says about those takes and what actors have said about those takes, I can refer you both to the original pieces about the makings of those movies and then to every profile and feature of the guy ever written. You have to mention that it's true, which I do. Yes. With examples. But you don't have to recapitulate it and in some ways, you know, Fincher being so loquacious on commentary tracks and, and offering so many portrait of the the artist at work features, like the one in the New York Times when Mank came out, David Fincher's Impossible Eye* by Jonah Weiner, which I do talk about in my book.
0: Yeah, you do. You know.
1: He, he demystifies the process. And it's not only that, it's that, you know, Kubrick was asked about the take thing a few times, but it was a different media culture, you know? I mean, when Fincher's asked, it would be multiple takes. He says the same thing every time. It's not a mystery. He says, I'm not trying to beat the spontaneity out of the actors. I'm trying to see what spontaneity is left. I'm trying to, to find the take that shows me, not that the first 25 were bad, but that the 26th one is different. And I'm not going to know that till... I see it and it's to give him options to cut. I mean, none of it is mystical. None of it is enigmatic. It's not about Pavlov and control and breaking people down and humiliating people. It's a method that has worked, you know, at least for, for, for him. Yes. And so I'm trying to hinge the book, not on, you know, the mind games that Fincher plays with his, with his collaborators, but the mind games that we you play with the movies, Yes. you know, are you watching technically accomplished, commercially viable uh, genre films with a soul or with a metaphysics?
0: <laughs> or are you just
1: watching the things I said without those things? Yes. You know, is it always the case that, you know, well, you know his movies have or or don't have those things? I'm a big believer that studying authorship is a study of unevenness and that studying authorship is not about always making excuses or accounting for flaws as strengths because you like what someone does and the best compliment i ever get for these books for the anderson and the fincher books is when people who've actually read them say things like well those passages are actually quite negative or those things are actually quite critical because then you get a useful tension i hope between the beautiful packaging of these books which are fetish objects (laughs) yes and a little bit of tension between that and and what's in them
0: and i you know it would be a surprise to no one that like i, I am a I think what some of my real cynophilic friends would call a vulgar or tourist um and in yeah. that way uh, but but the the view that i prescribe to is much more in line with exactly what you're talking about which is these are artists that come from a time and a very specific context, and it's much more interesting to me than. T- it feels so gotcha. If if these books were just you relitigating how many fucking takes, excuse my language, that David yeah. Fitcher did, it would be such an it would be so tiresome. It would be so indicative of all those kind of bad think bad faith film takes that i know that you and i and so many people universally detest for their clickbait i think what endures in this though and in your in, it's i mean um your i i can't remember I, I honestly don't know which one i love more out of the three of your books you uh, reappropriated one of your great cohen pieces of writing for a visual essay that i've i think I've watched about 30 times because oh, it was God. talking about uh, i'm sorry adam i'm just giving <laughs> you an <laughs> The circularity? The circularity. I just love, I just, the, there's a musicality in that circularity piece that is just sublime. Obviously, the chronology opened up way for, way much uh, more for me as a viewer with uh, PTA and obviously Fincher, but I just think it, you, I don't think you're doing criticism in the truest sense if you can't be objective about what doesn't work for you in your analysis. I just, and I, I feel like even in all the things that, done it's not universally been glowing it's, no, nervous, no. it's and it's not i don't think even well, the people who love what we do don't want that to be any 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 way shape or form
1: but 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 here's the challenge of fincher i mean you can do and i don't mean this in any way sarcastically or negatively it's interesting you can do high formalist writing on fincher where you can do shot duration And you can break apart editing patterns. And again, in a a rigorous way, which he might appreciate because he seems in all those pieces (laughs) to notice, you know, an eighth of an inch off on a camera handoff or something. I mean, you can account for the almost subliminal uh, propulsion of some of the later movies. Yes. Where whatever I think of the material in a movie like Dragon Tattoo, and I don't like the material in Dragon Tattoo, there's a glide and a drive that's undeniable. And I find that in some ways in writing about it, both the easiest and the hardest thing in the world, the easy thing to do is to describe it sensuously or to describe, you know, that feeling of being locked into the convergence. Then there's sort of the question of, well, what does it converge towards? And you've got the, 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 the between the ride and the journey and the, 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 the voyage and the destination and between, you know, form and content. And yes, artistry and crap you know and 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 i think that he he makes it both fun and hard to separate those things i mean there's a metaphor that another critic who i admire uh, who doesn't like uh, Dragon Tattoo, at all, and who's mixed on Fincher. I quote him, the, the critic Andrew Tracy from CinemaScope, and he uses a very tossed off metaphor. In fact, I'm sure 10 people said this about Dragon Tattoo. It's not some brilliant, you know, <laughs> singular metaphor, but he uses the idea of a a a, a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, yes. right? Yes. And what I like about that is I like, especially for a director like Fincher, who is a designer director who works for designers and who has often helped brand items including, I think, you know, silk. I mean in various <laughs> various clothing campaigns, you know. I mean, what is the utility of a silk purse? You could still put something inside a silk purse. Yeah. You know, sure. is it is it is 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 a silk purse by definition, you know, more useless than a than a than a burlap sack? <laughs> I mean it's more useful than a sow's ear. And I and I and I think that, you know, with dragon tattoo it took me a few viewings, but in some ways it's almost, I'm not gonna, it's, I don't think it's the best venture film. It's certainly not my favorite. I mean, you and I are in agreement yeah. for doing the dumb ranking thing, in mean, Zodiacs, the, the great film. And I've talked to you a lot about Zodiacs. So we, we can talk about some other movies for fun.
0: No, no, then, I, I'm so glad that you took this down the Dragon Tattoo route. Cause I want to talk to you about Dragon Tattoo particularly and Gone Girl too.
1: Yeah, but, but Dragon Tattoo is the one where I sort of think, this is really the big meditation what is this guy doing yeah right uh mark ash who's one of my favorite film critics uh, i quote him in there too he wrote a piece in the l magazine not some big massive essay it was a review it was a really good review of the film and mark says you know people have been saying for a long time that david fincher has bad material at which point is that his fault
0: and i like that (laughs) that is because
1: it suggests you know Things that we all know are true, but how do you talk about them? How do you talk about the fact that he's drawn back to this prurient, lurid serial killer material? How do you account for the fact that someone as obviously smart as him and as brilliant as him and as well-connected as him is going to take 16 months and $90 million and all that and make the girl with the dragon tattoo? You could argue that once that decision is made the die is cast about what kind of an artist you're working with, or rather that you're not working with an artist. You're working with someone who is just smelling blood in the air and, and knows how to make a movie that's going to be successful, especially because it's part of a franchise. And then I think about dragon tattoo, which I didn't like the first time I saw, it, but I think about the way that someone like Ignati Vishnevetsky wrote about that film as an accumulation of data and the way that every time, uh, Uh, Craig shows up somewhere there's a half second shot almost subliminal of him checking for cell phone service before entering traveling and exiting vehicles and these patterns of arrival and departure and these patterns of technology and these rhymes in between the sequences and then you get back to the silk purse ear thing and you sort of go you know as a silk purse this is pretty friggin interesting (laughs) because Fincher's not doing less, he's not doing least, no. he's not watching the bottom line. There is something in his approach that is at least attempting not just translation but transformation, not just fidelity, but like uh beyond fidelity, like like uh, uh an almost like a kind of a, not forgetting that he's making crap or not forgetting that he's making drink or not forgetting that he's making. Genre material, but it's like he's going to turn that genre material into kind of crystalline staging and crystalline characterization and defining character through detail. And by the end, I think about Rooney Mara putting her hand under Daniel Craig's shirt in the hotel room or her throwing the motorcycle jacket on the trash.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm deeply moved. And I'm moved within the confines of material that I do not respect. <laughs> I don't. I don't respect it jeeg larson rest in peace he was a left-wing uh, political muckraker and by all accounts you know he he gave the far right in his home country a hard time i mean i'll drink to him but he's a fucking horrendous novelist <laughs> and he has a terrible sense of character and he can't write prose and i find that material to be the most repellent kind of one for you one for me logic you know you can write a disgusting ex- explicit rape scene as long as she does the same back to somebody yes And all of that is still in the movie. And yet the filmmaker transforms it without changing it. Yes. And I'm fascinated beyond measure by that.
0: Yeah. I've gone back to Dragon uh, Tattoo so many times and I was trying to examine, and I loved when you were talking about these rhythms and it's almost like the rhythms of the movie and even the score, um, has a strange you know and and when you started writing like that i was like this movie is almost attack like however he's able to do it it like attacks your circadian rhythm where (laughs) it's like you're there the implicit rhythm of your body is moving and there's something about these little tones of the way that the score peaks the movements of the camera the rhythms of the behavior that it's just this like enveloping increasingly comforting thing And the material, as you said, is disgusting. Like you don't, it's not something that should be comfort viewing. Um, And I don't think it it, it sort of comforts or allures you in the way that Zodiac does, but there is something like, like I must read this pulp crap on the way between things. And it's almost like in between days, in between like the next task, that it just has this tremendous comfort and the staging and it's meditative and it's just odd. well it is, I- well, it
1: is well, well it is meditative and yet the paradox there and i love how you describe it as weirdly comforting because there's a lulling feeling to it it's meditative yes. and yet what all of his collaborators that the late collaborators especially i don't mean the dead ones i mean the ones who make the later <laughs> movies the late collaborators i talked to like angus wall and uh you know like uh like Cronin they all agreed he locates clarity and speed somehow yeah. right and that's a really particular talent because there's a lot of directors in different ways who can make a movie feel fast and speed is a source of dislocation or speed is a source of exhilaration but and i I'm, i don't want to mix metaphors and mix <laughs> filmmakers here because you know he doesn't have anything to do with the wachowskis but it's like a form of bullet time yeah. where the speed is relentless the speed of the shots, the speed of the story, to some extent, the amount that you're being asked to process. But it's like when athletes talk about the faster things get, the more it slows down and the more focus they have. Yes. Which is wonderful for a filmmaker of clues. Yes. And wonderful for a filmmaker of procedurals, because somehow you're simultaneously caught up in the unfolding drama of the story and you're also attuned to what you're going to look for.
2: Yeah.
1: Because... And this is now getting deeper into it, but he is not a mystical or a supernatural or uh, an ephemeral filmmaker. He exists in a secular materialist world. And when he makes movies about monsters, they're human monsters. And when he makes movies about evil, it's human evil. He's not a Shyamalan. He's not a Spielberg. He's not, in that sense, he's not even a Co- the Coens, no, who leave a lot of space in their movies for for, for potentially divine presence, you know. Yeah. And so with Fincher, you know, when you're when you're when you're in that kind of realistic uh, space, he's not hiding anything from you. In that sense, the movies play fair. What's yes, unfair yeah. about Zodiac? Is just that time exists.
0: Right? It's just the, it's just the human fucking condition.
1: Well, it's, well, it's the human condition. It's also again. You, I start getting lofty with Zodiac. I mean, dragon tattoo. I'm happy to kind of make fun of it and be like, "What's the line, Andrew? Had, Andrew Tracy called it, you know, Agatha Christie with anal rape." And like, I make fun of it that way because it's true. Zodiacs where I start getting lofty. Zodiacs start getting
0: lofty. One thing I also appreciate. This is what I would just say about all the books is that. Adam as you can hear is so voraciously well voiced in great critical voices that I sometimes have a, my notes from my iPhone or like a pen for for things that I haven't read yet and I will sit you, I will write it down because you I know, love you, you, you got you got to quote other people I lo- but I love you know
1: with, with zodiac I start getting lofty that's where in my brain I start being like oh yeah Deleuze and and <laughs> and the time image and, it's stuff.
0: and it's again my, you know, it's, it's is the time image it's, it's hard
1: but, but Zodiac is one of those movies where really the, the, the true nature of the evil is just that we're bodies in space and time and we can't have absolute knowledge on a playing field of, of, of total perception. <laughs> if only we could, everything would be fine. Yes. You know, Dra- Dragon Tattoo really is a movie where everything is sitting there in open view for you to spot. Yes. And those movies that turn us into detectives, like Seven, Yes. can be really fun.
0: Of course, you know? that, that I mean that that's the other strange incongruity that I think I love reading and synthesizing in your book over the different chapters is, um, is the way that even though the material is so, I don't know, like confrontingly candid about the awfulness uh, that human beings can inflict upon one another, there is nonetheless the f- he, whatever the alchemy of his uh, of his lens that he casts on all these things and the way that he portrays them, they are always entertaining. Like seven, like you said, I think we talked in a previous zodiac episode and it was sprinkled throughout you know, just this um, the script for Zodiac. It's just like a perfect it's a perfect dramatic conceit and it's perfectly structured to do what it's going to do. Um, and so it, it may not be like the greatest of his movies, but as far as just like the most perfect rounded best movie. You mean, you mean, movie. You mean Seven, yeah. Yeah, Seven, yeah. Seven, yeah. So Seven has that movie.
1: Seven, and, and Seven was the first chapter I wrote for the book because I felt like it's the one I have to nail because Alien 3 is the false start. Yes. Right? Alien 3 in some ways is either the movie that you have to take Fincher out of totally and you examine it. From a fanish or an academic or a totally disinterested purview, and those are three different options. So it's actually not empty at all.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just like you know,
1: how is it as an alien movie, or the totally intention-free, you know, just deconstruction of the alien universe in terms of gender and and biology, which you can do. Yes, you know, or you have to look at it as a kind of production case study, right? Because the only way to oturif oturify Seven uh, Alien Three is as the failure. Yes. And as a primal scene kind of failure whereby the director gets a big chip on his shoulder and learns a tough lesson about how producers aren't going to coddle and baby him and how people who've been at this a long time don't like being told they're bad at their jobs by someone from <laughs> MTV and who had a lot of good ideas that no one listened to. Yes. The mix of things. Yes. Seven is the true debut in that for the first and not the last time, and this is a model of his best movies, I think from Seven through Zodiac to some extent Gone Girl. Um he, he finds out that his best move is to make a movie in which perfectionism and staging and choreography and the need to be heard are kind of the subject. Yes. And that's why I think I start with Seven because that John Doe character uh is totally the director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't speak for Fincher. But his methodology is something Fincher is somewhat not just sympathetic to, but he's, you know, fanatical about respecting. Yeah, and and so it's a sort of gross and quite cruel introduction to Fincher as auteur because it's a kind of sociopathic uh, on-screen surrogate. And that's why the the critics who got Seven the best or the critic who caught it the best, and I defer to her because she's one of the best writers on Fincher, was Amy Taubin, who in Sight and Sound, knowing what she sounded like, because she's writing about, you know, a new line serial killer movie. But and and she's like, you know, she's invoking, you know, Baudelaire and The Flowers of Decay. And she's doing it because she sees that this is a filmmaker for whom style trumps morality. Yep and whose aesthetic sense is a decaying ruinous decrepit fleshy one and that doesn't care that the film arguably has a right-wing view arguably yes. of cities and crime and punishment and violence and doesn't care how lurid the movie is and in some ways how sexist it is and in some ways how cruel it is she's she's recognizing style she's recognizing style as a means to an end yes and i think fincher's developed beyond that
2: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Different arenas where he can do other things with it. Yes. You know, you know, Taubin was unafraid to 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 say what she saw. Yes. Which is that she saw a stylist, and you can sort of say, you know, you're playing pin the tail on the <laughs> on the on the literary donkey by evoking Baudelaire. It's the same way the Seven Script keeps beefing itself up by being like, "Here's Chaucer, and here's Dante." <laughs> I mean, within Seven that stuff's not just pretentious. I mean, it's kind of insufferable and it's very funny <laughs> when it, hit, you know, asks for the cliff's notes and stuff because, you know, that the movie knows that it's got this pasture of sacred literary cows and it's not really getting into them. <laughs> yeah, It's like not, you're it's not like actually talking to a classics major. It's like talking to someone who wants to, to be one, you know?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: But she's meeting the movie right on. It's semi pretentious, incredibly effectively visceral level. Yes. And I can kind of make fun of aspects of Seven all day, and at the end of the day, I'll be like, also, this is a basically perfect (laughs) four-star American studio movie, and you fucking show me someone who's done this this well. Yeah. Ever. Ever.
0: And... Since since that. And what's so great about that thought about it and having that feeling on it is you got to see how many people tried to knock it off, even yep. with Andrew Kevin Walker scripts over and again, and all of them are inferior. Like there's not one that even comes close.
1: And that's why if he had truly become the a recidivist, as opposed to an auteur, which is a kind of recidivism where you're doing the same thing over and <laughs> over. I mean, if Fincher had really learned the lesson from Seven that I should just do these, you know, you could maybe argue that, uh, <laughs> Both he and the movie would have a bit less integrity. I mean, he's returned some of those things, but what lacks integrity, both structural integrity and I think artistic integrity, are all the movies that, as you say, show up what they lack and that this movie has. Yes. You know, I I I I watched Seven in New York last month because I was there for the launch of the book and we watched it on 35. And in my head, the kind of inner monologue I had while watching it is, you know. Okay, we well, just talked about it, we're gonna talk about it later. I mean, you know, don't overrate it. But how do you overrate it? Yeah. You can argue that within the within its boundaries, you can say a movie like this doesn't need to exist. I don't want a movie like this. That's fine. Yeah. You have a right to say that. If a movie like this is gonna exist and New Line's gonna put it out and cast it and promote it and, and, and market it, it's flawlessly pulled off by someone who's basically a rookie filmmaker. Yeah, You know, and I'm really attracted in retrospect to that time in the 90s and in my own film going adolescence where even if it's juvenile, I felt like I was voting with my wallet and, you know, voting with my little defiance by going to see this disgusting movie. Yes. You know, I think that it marshaled, I think he marshaled a lot of film goers who felt like, you know that this was now the bleeding edge of the mainstream to some extent. Yes. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of nostalgia for that, for that feeling that a studio movie could be a little bit dangerous and that there really is a head in the box and there really is a helplessness to the complicity that the cops have. I mean, I mentioned this in the book and other people have mentioned, I don't ever pretend to come up with anything original about these movies. It's just how you try and see it honestly and then work with what other people have said and seen. Yes. You know, that bit where they find Help Me written in the, the drug dealer's fingerprints behind the the painting. At such a double-edged moment because it's not so much a cry for help as a polite request.
2: <laughs> it,
1: it's an invitation towards a complicity, the scope of which can only be revealed when the script is done fucking with you and when you realize <laughs> that really the whole time they are helping him yeah. because they're drawing attention to his work through the media. They're creating the narrative and the linearity that is required to blow people's minds. They're, they're serving as, as, as an audience and then they're serving as participants in what's basically a, you know, a live 24-hour art installation. And I love that. And, and, and that, I love that help me. And I love that help me. Sorry is written in fingerprints. Yes, as a sort of a, a little joke on authorship. Yeah, I think is wonderful.
0: It's and also I love that he said. But it's the his whole method and his whole process uh, to reinforce your point. Like every scene is a shrine. Like the library of the materials that inspired him is a shrine. Every crime scene is a shrine, and even the the final fallout. Of you know, in this like desolate you know sort of um, city uh, city limits that lets the last sort of uh, you know two sins unfold. It's all sh- it's my like head. a giant. Sh- the whole thing is a shrine to this this sort of energy. My mom, uh, my mom may or may
1: not make it through this podcast, but her favorite line in Seven, she loves Seven. Her favorite line is when you hear the helicopter pilots and the sound design is so great because yeah. their dialogue is so breathless and loud you know and it's, it's 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 emphasizing how far away they are their inability to really do anything i mean they're truly just observers at a remove. it's very helpless but but my mom's favorite line is when one of them says "There's sure as shit no ambush out here and, <laughs> it's, such a, and it's such a great line because about 30 seconds later it is disproven yeah it's not a violent yeah. ambush it's the arrival of a of a truck and the idea of being in the middle of nowhere in a totally different visual environment colors we haven't seen in the movie before because it's sunshine and it's just blasted, you know, blinding gold and white. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 the cinema of it, you know? <laughs> yes. And so all those little things about plausibility and likelihood and, 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 and even the timeline of it, cause it's never been clear to me whether it's 6am or 6pm and doesn't oh. really make sense either way. Yeah. Uh, these things become subordinate to that, you
0: know, there's one thing talking about his slavish formalism during this year. I've been obviously consuming so much, obviously your book and, and, and the commentary tracks, I think you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned before, but I also love that for all of the people that want to discuss in great detail, sort of every way that Fincher is like uh adhering to this perfection in his mind i heard this great moment in the um uh curious case of benjamin button commentary track which i just adore it's yeah. where kate blanchett is made up as old kate blanchett and she's walking along with what is then like a toddler sized benjamin button and there's this moment and it's such a beautiful moment and when you watch it in the movie it's you can't help but be moved just by the the, the pure Cinema and poetry of it is that the little baby ho- is holding her hand and, and looks this, at Kate Blanchett and that, gives her yeah. a little kiss, and it's a ador- It's one of the cutest things you, you'll ever see. And Fincher, in that moment, talked about they were just watching her and sort of observing, like almost like in a hide, as if you were hunting for a shot, hoping, drink, you know, like just praying that some little bit of spontaneity would come and they captured this shot. They didn't make it happen. The baby just like looked up at Kate and wanted to give her a kiss and Kate leant down and kissed him. And he said his camera operator was so excited in that moment that he was like shaking, like sticking his thumb up and ruining Fincher's perfect okay. still shot. And Fincher then said, oh, "We went back and digitally stabilized the shot." And it's yeah. so funny that this is the guy who cuts off one eighth of a frame if there's a bump whatever like we'll refuse to use that digital technology and then yet in this moment at least later a little bit later in his career he's like no i can't be so slavish to my formal impulses here the perfect shot happened and we got it it might have been slightly unstable but i'm not going to be so fascistic about what actually appears on screen so i like that too uh talking about him as he's evolving as a filmmaker
1: Well, you know, I quote that passage in the book because for me, that, that image is, it goes beyond the heart of the movie. It's one of those images that dwarfs the movie around it. Yeah, it does. To me, Button is, Benjamin Button is a film that I have a certain (laughs) impatience for, for, for parts of it. And I have a hard time pulling apart the Fincherness of it from the Eric Roth of it. and, with respect to Eric Roth, who's got his name on a couple of really great movies, including with apologies to, to, to heat, you know, my favorite Michael Mann movie, which is the insider. (laughs) So, I mean, Roth has been, Roth has touched greatness in some of the movies he's worked on. I don't like the script for Benjamin Button. And I like that that frame we're talking about exists within the screenplay, but was spontaneously generated in a way caught in a way outside the movies design and then vindicates the movie's design and transcends it yes and i am not one of these people who says that movies play one way if you're a parent and one way if they're not because there's infinite ways to be a parent and there's infinite ways to technically not have children but have different relationships in life so i hate that idea that you know you're a parent you get certain movies and you don't what i will say is for me personally that shot in benjamin button only meant something to me abstractly in 2008 when I was, you know, some 27 year old with a <laughs> girlfriend. And then getting older, and it's not just about being a parent, but about proximity to death, not that I'm about to die tomorrow. But I found that idea in that shot of care and vulnerability and the way that love survives changing relationships, even to the people in our lives, that this was a friendship that became a courtship, that became a (laughs) full-bodied adult, adult, you know, you know, sex, sex life filled love affair that then became co-parenting that then involved leaving and life experiences accruing on both ends, except for her, they're piling up and for him, they're disappearing. Yeah. Because what makes me so moved and it almost makes me want to cry even talking about it is the idea and Fitzgerald writes about it so movingly in the story, even though the story's not great. He writes in a way about Benjamin's memories receding as he ages. So you're receding to a point of childhood naivete instead of starting out at it. But there's a certainty in that kiss that it does add up with the characters in the film, but it's outside that movie for me too. Yeah. And it, it's stunning. And sometimes you watch a movie and you think, yeah, my complaints are pretty petty. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you can do the numbered ranking of, of movies and give them a rating out of a hundred, or you can give movies a, a star rating, or you can write, you know, from a formula. And there's some critics, I really don't like to do that. And, 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 you know, some people make it work. I mean, that's fine. If the writing is good, put whatever symbol you want at the end of it. But it makes Benjamin Button hard because if I'm adding up merits and demerits, they're almost even for me. It's a split yeah. decision. But then yeah. a shot like that or a shot like the clock at the end being washed away, which is maybe a little more precious, but still it's very powerful. Yes. It puts these movies over the top. Yeah. Film direction is not simply image making. Film direction is not simply finding thematic emblems for movies. You know what film, you know what film direction is. It's all kinds of things. Film direction yeah. is performance. Film direction is tone. Film direction is, I just talked with Paul Thomas Anderson about this. It's keeping kids hydrated on set. I mean, it's a lot <laughs> of things. But, but, but those shots, to conceive them, to execute them, to find a place for them in the editing of the film, and all these flaws suddenly do not matter. Yes. They're washed away. And that's how I write about Benjamin Button in the book. It's a movie. I don't even believe its thesis. <laughs> that flaws get washed away by time. And yet its flaws are washed away by the that's placement it. of these images within the narrative. And I come, I find myself going, fuck, I kind of love this movie. Despite <laughs> very rational, alert misgivings,
0: yes. And much
1: like Dragon Tattoo, liking it almost in spite of the material
0: yes and if you like
1: a movie in spite of material then you're kind of talking about direction yes
0: absolutely. what else are you talking about if yeah. not direction yeah you're, you're talking about how it's made because yeah. again um you know to go back to michael Mann, just ever so briefly it's like i, I talk about miami vice 2006 we've got another show miami nice which we love yeah. talking about to different people i'm i I'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm familiar with michael Mann's work you are sure you sure are <laughs> and but that movie i I, the case i make when we talk about it to so many of the great filmmakers and and critics that that join us is if you gave that script to someone to shoot they don't make that movie it look it is it would be unrecognizable but michael Mann's through through with through his prism of the way that he needs to make it and the romance of doing that in every in every shot whether it's the thumping of a boat or whether it's like a, an intimate shower between a couple, whether it's a, whether it's a, a Cuban dance, um, uh, you know, in, in Havana overnight, um, there's just, that's take away the material. Cause the material is just pretty, pretty contrived and pretty trite at this point, but it's, it's actually so much about the filmmaking. I'm,
1: I'm not going to let you drag me down the man alley, nor should you let me drag you, but I will say this for your listeners, for your listeners. <laughs> Our privilege to hear you talk about Michael Mann. You're so good on, man. You, you and your guests are so good on, man. Here's my brilliant insight into Michael Mann. I'm <laughs> it here for the first time. Here's my brilliant insight. He's very weird. <laughs> and I think that like all really good genre filmmakers, there's a respect, obviously, of all the stuff that people scare, uh, italicize in their takes on him. You know, craftsmanship and professionalism and the job. I mean, that's baked in. Yes. But he's weird. Oh, and yeah. my and, and Miami Vice is extremely weird, <laughs> and I would actually say that Fincher for all of the perverse psychology and psychotic characters is actually not that weird. No. I think that he has an imaginative capacity for how entertaining evil can be. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but that's not the same as saying that he's 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 he's, he's truly strange. No. And, and Fincher's work isn't actually very eccentric. It's very rigorous and thoughtful. I mean, I think the things about him that are wrong is that he's not emotional or that he's not humane. I don't believe that for a second. I think sometimes he's not, but I think sometimes he's capable of great, great humanity and decency and warmth and, and feeling for characters and feeling for people. Uh, but he's actually not that weird. No. You know?
0: Michael Mann, on the other hand, and I can say this unequivocally is, you know, as, as kind of an expert on Michael yeah, yeah. Mann's work, um, he's weird as, And that's why, one of the reasons why I love Alan Pakula. Because he's like a real staunch intellectual, but he's also fascinated in weird. He's like, he, 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 he appreciates weird. And so Mann is weird himself, but Pakula is more of a, uh, he, you know, he always wanted to be a kind of guy who sat people down on a psychologist chair and, and, and examined them um and and... Well, and look
1: at his and look at his two best movies yeah are our, and our president's men which have the therapeutic dynamic or yes. the psychiatrist office built into them and it's you know you mentioned pecula but Pe- pecula there was a version of this fincher book that was going to include him as like a running subplot yes and i thought that that's something maybe you can do in a video essay or 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 more of a standalone project i didn't want to under respect pacula by having him as a subplot in David Fincher's story and also there's a lot of other filmmakers to bring in
0: yes of course
1: but 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 pacula in some ways I know friends who've tried to insult Fincher by saying that he's wishes he was Kubrick but he's really Alan pacula and <laughs> I'm like Alan good is pretty good he's pretty good he's pretty and good. and and You know, that idea of an intelligent psychological commercial cinema that Pacula aspired to is not too far from, I think, what Fincher's trying, more control he's gotten. And now that he's gotten some of his really juvenile impulses out of his system in the 90s, it's more what I think he's trying to to do.
0: Another movie that I was watching in preparation to talking to you, um, because I knew we were going to talk, I went back and watched The Social Network just as a... And that that is a movie that and and especially there's been a lot of writing recently on um Sorkin as a filmmaker who's trying you know, he's a writer and is trying to be a filmmaker. And I just am staggered, you know, you looking at the gap in quality from the way that Fincher executes Sorkin and even Danny Boyle to a certain extent with Steve Jobs executes Sorkin with filmmaking clarity rather than sort of the muddy and I don't know, I don't know, slow and messy things that Sorkin's been producing. This is my words, not Adam's. I'm not prescribing them for you, but I just also, again, I'm just also staggered in the Alan Pakula of it all, and interested and hoping that that video essay material, uh, video essay materializes. In that, I just am staggered by the clarity of the social networks, understanding of some of the issues that we're now facing with these, with technology and technology companies, that that it had at the time, and that it continues to maintain with revisitation. And I just think that that was a beautiful part of your book.
1: No, I appreciate that. It's a hard movie to write about. Um, I've always seen The Social Network as a movie that occupies an extremely stylized, but texturally real space. And it does not predict beyond it. What it tries to do is map it onto a larger continuum of historical, you know, universal human behavior. Yes. So people will take the social network to task for not anticipating, I don't know, Trump and the sites used during the election and Zuckerberg's weird crypto libertarian politic and to you know all the all the people who took up his technology. And I think that you can argue that no you know no movie can be that kind of predictive or or, or, or prophetic. Um, it certainly wasn't made to take the long view on Facebook. They rushed it, not rushed as craft, because it's perfect as craft, but they, they wanted to make it a movie of the moment. And some of the byproducts of making a movie of the moment is that history keeps going, and it re- recontextualizes what you do. But when I see in that movie the understanding, and part of it is Sorkin, to his credit, even yes. though I think he's, he's a really distasteful, uh, horrible... Uh, <laughs> It, it, uh, in recent times, uh, filmmaker. I mean, Chicago Seven is one of the most dishonest, I think, hateful American movies in a long <laughs> time in terms of how it takes real, genuine, revolutionary history and ardor and ideology and tries to package it by making the hero a conservative lawyer who stands up and cheers when they read the names of the dead in Vietnam, which never happened. I mean, I just want to punch that movie. But You know, the the social network, it's understanding Sorkin's, understanding Fincher's, understanding that, you know, this giant internet paradigm was shifted by a bunch of lonely, sexually frustrated, competitive, rich assholes. Yes. And a worse movie would really have someone say what I just said. Yeah. It does already come close to saying that because to offset the fact that he has no idea how to write women, Sorkin tries to have these two slam dunks by female characters, Erica at the beginning saying, you know, mm-hmm. you're an asshole and, 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 and Rashida Jones softening it at the end by saying, well, you're not an asshole, but you want to be. But in between those two little, I think, kind of quite, quite unnecessary little, little gildings of the lily, that's a movie that understands a kind of like covetous, competitive, insecure male psychology. Yes. And in that sense, I'm very grateful for that movie. Yeah. Because it's very apt. And if it was a worse movie, it would be much clearer to say, and that's bad.
0: Yeah. But it it doesn't
1: say, and that's bad. No. And Fincher is only able to get inside it the way he does because of what he did say in interviews, which people don't like. But what he said in interviews was, I sympathize with Zuckerberg and maybe not what he does, but that desire to want to be good and to make something and to stand out and to be exceptional how else can you get the feelings in that movie
0: but
1: for some level of identification
0: yeah for for the for the ability to be to have an idea even if it's a co-opted one to have an idea that is so resonant yeah. to have to for that lightning to strike you and to watch someone go well he's kind of already a rich asshole, as you said but like from rich asshole to uber rich asshole with much more influence but it's it's they're almost universally um, detestable characters that are on show in that movie uh, in the nicest possible way that you can say that, but it's so riveting.
1: I mean, I argued the book in some ways it's as much a Fitzgerald adaptation or a Fitzgerald movie as, you know, Button was, maybe even more so because he's not having to cast back to the turn of the century for social understanding. He's kind of dealing with a a gentrified neo-aristocratic Silicon Valley million now. And I mean, I don't think that Zuckerberg is Gatsby, but he's not not Gatsby. I mean, in the sense that he's obsessed with something that he can't have, which is, you know, a certain kind of respect or a certain physical stature. And he won't row crew. And, you know, he's driven to surpass all the people who he feels genetically or physically or socially are superior to him, but it's not going to actually make them surpass them. And there's a little bit of lost little boy sentimentality to that, but there's also... Uh, a psychological acuity and i think that you know, amy taubin again writing with eisenberg's performance she's amy Talbin's not shy to praise things that she likes and she she said she thought you know zuckerberg gave one of the greatest gestural performances in the history of cinema, and i'm like well that's a long time
0: but
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely a type more than an impersonation of zuckerberg which he's pretty good as yeah it's more that eisenberg nails a certain type that I think is documentary true.
0: Yes. Uh, I, the way that Eisenberg is able to modulate between this sort of like stuttering, uh, almost, in, uh, unable to, uh, hold like this bursting sort of uh, energy that with inside him To And this is where I, I, I can kind of also get hyperbolic is the moment when he's talking to Justin Timberlake's Sean. Uh, in in the bar and he's being like lured in by this freaking tech swagger bullshit. Yeah. And he's just so dialed in and certain. It's almost like he's, he's started to move like a human being that he hasn't, he's moved like a cybernetic organism for the rest of the movie, but, but like a human being at that moment. It's like, Oh, he is just, he's on the frequency of this guy. Like that's what's so wonderful about it.
1: He is. And again, it's a, it's a great example of, uh, of, of, of direction direction of, yeah. of, uh, of an actor.
0: Adam, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, this is it, so much fun to talk to you. And I, be, can I just yeah. say, yeah, the, I, while I love all three of your books and your incredible reviews, Uh, your interpretations of your daughter on Twitter continue to be one of the like nuggets of gold for me as a dad. And I know that you're a dad and it just brings me so much joy because I'm, it just absolutely levels me. Usually if I'm having a crummy day and I scroll through your feed and I see some kind of, some of your more, nonsense uh, tweets um, that I just they're just a, a source of pure joy. So firstly, you know, I, I, had a, I had
1: a—I had a—I had a moment where I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was good or bad when I was in New York with this book at Momi. you know, people are buying it after and signing, which is always a wonderful experience. And it's everything from people sort of being like, you know, I don't know you, but I, I read you here. or People say, oh, you know, don't you remember we? I don't know, we, we, we school together. I mean, it's always something And one guy came and, you know, asked me to sign the book. I signed it to him and he said, by the way, you know, I I hope Leah's doing well. And I had this brief (laughs) moment of cognitive dissonance. Perfectly nice guy. No issue with the guy. He's a sweet guy. But I'm like, why are you close shaven 25 year old (laughs) dude talking about my five year old daughter? And I'm like, oh, that's my fault because I've turned her into (laughs) with very little, with very little exaggeration or embellishment and <laughs> who, who she is. And I'm like, Oh, it mean, she's not a baby. Should I still be quoting her on Twitter? And there was a brief period about two or three weeks ago where I kind of found myself stopping out of this belief for, for privacy, which is actually the right impulse, but she's just so funny. And, I, and then I just find I'm like, I got to share this stuff because you know, she may not go into stand up comedy or I don't know, you know, she might not become a weird cult leader, and I still want this <laughs> stuff on the record. So that's very sweet of you. To, sweet of you to say, and uh, you know, you're 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 probably a better dad than me for not turning your your kids into social media characters. So
0: <laughs>
2: not I yet. Guess we'll, we'll check not back.
1: <laughs> check back in 15 years and see whose kids are better adjusted. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have a blast.
0: You're the best. Take care,
1: Adam. Take care, man. Nice to see you. Have a see good day. You.